So chapter 1, verse 1. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses in the tent of meaning, in the wilderness of Sinai, on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israelites departed from the land of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and families, counting the name of every individual male. You and Aaron are to number all in Israel who can serve in the army, those who are 20 years old or older, by their divisions. And to help you, there is to be a man from each tribe, each man the head of the family. Now these are the names of the men who are to help you. So he lists a person from each tribe. So once again, as a reminder, the book of Numbers begins with God speaking to Moses in the tabernacle, not outside of the tabernacle. So basically what God is saying is that I have accept your sacrifice at the Day of Atonement for cleansing. Now I know for those who were here for the Leviticus class and those who've ever read Leviticus on your own, Leviticus feels really long. So it feels like from the end of Exodus to the beginning of Numbers, that was a really long time. It was actually only a couple weeks. <laughs> they begin Leviticus unclean and ready to be not be in the presence of God. And then a couple weeks later, after they get through the Day of Atonement and all that kind of stuff, they're now clean. For those who remember the class, basically you need to think like Christmas break was the day that you worshipped the golden calf and became unclean. And then somewhere in the last couple weeks, you did the Day of Atonement and you became clean again. And now God is telling you, I've accept that. I've accept your cleansing. And now you can come into my presence and you can dwell with me. The equivalent of this is you and your spouse or you and your friend or you and a family member somehow wronging each other and, and being hurt and being wounded by that. And there, it's very hard for you to have a relationship. It's very hard for you to hang out and play cards or watch television or whatever because there's this hurt between you. And until you work out that hurt and discuss it and cleanse it, so to speak, then you can get back to enjoying life together, truly enjoying each other. And so that's kind of where they are. So this statement is huge because this statement is saying that God has accepted them. God has accepted their repentance. He's accepted their cleansing. He's accepted their atonement. And they can come back and be with God again and hang out and really truly enjoy each other again. Does that make sense? And so this is how the book of Numbers is beginning. And it's trying to communicate that point to you. The first thing that God now says is, I want you to count all the people that are a nation. But I only want you to count the males that are 21 years and older. And the reason is why? For military. Now, they are going to the promised land, and the promised land is occupied by six other nations that are all typically called Canaanites or Amorites. Um, there's several different, like the Girgashites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all these kind of stuff, but they all usually fit under the umbrella title of Amorites or Canaanites. We'll talk about that a lot more when we get to, when we get to Joshua. Um, so they're heading up there. These are evil, evil, evil people that are under the judgment of God. And so God is going to wipe them out, so to speak. And so he wants them to get ready for military action. This is holy war. And so we'll talk about that more when we get to Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll, we'll tackle that big, giant, controversial issue 
the extermination of the Canaanites. So until then, just hold off on that if you've got questions. But that's basically where God is sending them. Now, if they're obedient to God, they're 11 days away from war. You need to think of it that way. For us, when we read through the whole book of Numbers, it takes a long time to read it. And then you realize it didn't enter the land, and you've got to get through Deuteronomy, and it feels like it's forever before they actually enter the promised land, which is true. It's at least 40 years later. But they don't know that yet. Right now, all they know is they're 11 days away from the promised land, and in 11 days, they're going to go to war. And so what God wants them to do is count how many people can fight. How many people can fight in this war? And so that's what this census is all about. Now, God had previously had them take a census earlier in Exodus chapter 30. So they've already had a census. But that census was to determine how many adult males owed the atonement money. Okay, so that was more interested in who are all the heads of the family who owed an atonement to God for their sins. So that counting was for the atonement of sins. This counting is how many people can fight. And that's what you need to understand is the first 11 chapters read like a military book. It is it's all military language. And it doesn't feel like that to us because we're thinking of these people as the chosen people of God and they're being blessed. And, and we don't think of religion and military entering in with each other, but it is. And so this census is um, communicating four major principles. The first one is that Yahweh shows that he is a God of order, not chaos. The first thing that God is wanting to do is count. And he's going to organize everybody. And so we're going to enter into a counting period. We're going to enter into an organization period like you camp here, you camp here, you camp here, and you march here, and you march here, and, you march here, and, you march here, and everything is getting organized. Like a drill sergeant organizing all his men, teaching them how to march, do formation. Because we know that that discipline, that order, and that formation, and that organizational, everybody knowing where they belong is essential for proper fighting in order to be all disciplined. And so that's what God is doing here. As he's teaching them, so just like he begins creation with ordering the days of the week, and putting everything in its proper place, including humanity, and then giving them a purpose to expand the garden and subdue anything that would threaten the righteousness of the garden. Now he is beginning by ordering his people, putting them all in their proper place so that he can send them into the new garden so that they can subdue anything that threatens the righteousness of that garden and expand that garden. This is the new creation the new garden. So just like God created a garden and then said expand it and they lost that, he created a little teeny garden called the tabernacle where they could be with God and now he's going to put them in a new garden, the promised land where they're going to expand it. And so that's what they're going to do. This is their mission. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Deuteronomy. Second, Yahweh shows that he has been faithful to the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. By counting the people, he's showing that when he first told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and you will be the father of a multitude, which is what Abraham means. And then Abraham has two kids and one walks away from the covenant promises. So he's left with one. And then that kid, Isaac, has two kids and one walks away from the covenant promises. So you have one. And then that kid has 12. And they're all kind of screwed up, but at least they stay with it. 
and you think, wow, after three generations, you have 12 whole people. Wow, that's a great honoring of your promise, God. But remember, Exodus begins with they were swarming the land and their fruitfulness. And so by numbering them, counting them, he's reminding them that just like I have honored my promise to Abraham by making you a, a multitude, you can trust me to honor the next promise of giving you a land. He's reminding them of his past faithfulness to his promises so they can trust him and the present faithfulness to answering his promise. And that's what God is doing here. The third reason is that every member of the people have a role to play. By counting them all, he's going to tell each tribe what their role is and what each family in their role is. And what he's showing you them is that they're a community. And this is the equivalent of Paul's everybody is a member of the body of Christ kind of a thing. And if everybody was an eye or if everybody was an arm, how could the body function? Everybody has their function, and when we all work together, the body is healthy. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to communicate that everybody has their function, and everybody is in their proper place doing their proper thing, then you will be a community of people. Because one of God's greatest desire is that Israel be unified. That's a huge theme that's also going through this book, is unification. And unfortunately, the book is going to end with a big disunification. And the fourth thing that he's trying to show with this census is that Israel was a hierarchy of holiness within the theocracy of Yahweh's kingdom. So hierarchy is higher authority, lesser authority, lesser authority. Theocracy is Theo is God, and ocracy is, um, or archy, is ruler, so it's God is their king. So unlike creating a hierarchy of um, you're born into the right family and you're not, which is often how like the medieval period was organized, if you're born in this family, you get to be kings. If you're not, you're peasants. That's your hierarchy. Or who has the most money, which is typically how things are done in America. And so rather than that being the hierarchy, the hierarchy is holiness. Remember, holiness is only God is holy in the sense that only he is absolutely unique and unlike anything else in creation. Therefore, nothing can be compared to him. But we become holy when we're used by God. And when we allow ourselves to be used by God and we draw close to God, then God begins to use us in an absolutely unique way that nobody else is getting used in creation. And so what he's saying is those who draw closer to God they're higher up in their holiness. And those who stay further away from God, they're down. Now, don't, don't think of it as in like a church kind of setting, like I'm more righteous than you. Because a lot of times we think of like hierarchy of holiness and righteousness in a self-righteous kind of a sense. This has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with like you might have several kids and maybe one of your children was more obedient and they desired to be with you more than the other kid did. And they drew closer to you. And you had a better relationship with them than you did your other kids. Not because you were playing favorites. Not because that one was better, the goody two-shoe, and you favor goody two-shoe people. It's just that they just were obedient. And they responded in love. And they drew closer to you. And you had a better relationship with them. And therefore, the hierarchy was not a hierarchy of authority or power. It was a hierarchy of relationship that I'm closer to this person than I am the other person. I love you all equally. I want to bless you all equally. But I can trust this child, and we're closer, and we talk about more things than I do with my others. 
because they don't draw as close or as near as this one does. Does it make sense? And so that's kind of what the hierarchies of holiness is like, is that the Levites are closer to God because they're the ones who did not worship the golden calf. And they chose to draw close to God rather than go after the golden calf. And therefore, they were able to come closer to God. And then the other tribes are a little bit further away because they sinned in the golden calf. And then the other people are further away. And so the hierarchy is about relationship. The hierarchy is about those who draw close to God. And that's what God is trying to communicate is that God is their king. And the ones who submit to him and draw close to him in love will have a closer dwelling with him than those who say, this isn't as important to me. And that's how God is organizing it. So this census, as boring as it might be, and as hard as it is to pronounce a lot of the names, is communicating very important relational ideas. And in the middle of this is Yahweh. He is their king. And he is communicating the idea that he is the king, and they are all to organize themselves around him. So now they have their purpose. So this is how he's going to organize them. He's going to take a census of the tribes, and they're going to count the number of the people. And the number of the people is going to come around 600,000. Now, that number presents a lot of problems. I'm not going to go through those problems again. If you're interested, go back to the audio of Exodus. I deal with all those problems, or just read the notes from Exodus. So basically, I've already discussed all that in detail of the problem with these numbers. Um, and not that the Bible is inaccurate in the number it's communicating, it's just that we don't fully understand what that number means. So that is in the book of Exodus, as they're coming around chapter 14, 15, and the Exodus of, is basically those numbers. So basically counts them, and they're about the same number as they d- were when they left Egypt. Why? Because it's only about a year later. It's not like they're going to grow tremendously in that time period. Now remember, how many tribes are there in Israel? Ah, trick question. 13. Yes. Hey, remember? Now, that was way back in Genesis chapter 47, 48, and 49. Basically, remember, Jacob had how many sons? This is not a trick question. 12. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It was actually Manasseh was the firstborn, then Ephraim. Jacob in chapter 48 of Genesis goes to Joseph's two sons and he blesses them. But the way that he blesses them, by the grandfather blessing the grandchildren, he was lifting them up to be equal status with his other 12 sons. But at the same time, by the fact that he was blessing them, in a way they were replacing Joseph. Because that's the whole point. We want our kids to replace us. So it's not like he's kicking Joseph out of the family and saying, you don't get to be one of the tribes. He's doubling Joseph. So by blessing the two sons of Joseph and elevating him up to equal status with his own biological sons, he was basically doubling Joseph. And so he turns Joseph into two tribes. That's why if you remember in your studies, you never ever learn about the tribe of Joseph. But you remember the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Because Joshua comes from the tribe of Ephraim. And so he doubles Joseph, and that was the blessing. Remember, the firstborn title blessing gave you double inheritance and the headship over the tribe. But Jacob splits that firstborn title between two people. He splits it between Judah, who gets the head of the tribe. That's why Jesus comes from Judah. 
And then he blesses Joseph with the double inheritance. That's why Joseph gets two sons to inherit the tribes rather than one like everybody else. So in that sense, they become 13 tribes. Now remember, why does God call them the 12 tribes when they're technically 13? Because it's a baker's dozen, so to speak. And basically what he's doing is God knows eventually Levi will become the priest, and Levi will not be considered a tribe in the same way that everybody else is because of the priests. They're exempted from war. They're not allowed to have land. They're going to be living in all the tribes. And so what he's doing is he's allowing himself to have 12 tribes no matter what. So when you go into war, Levi's not allowed to fight, but you still have the 12 tribes of Israel. And also the other thing is if one tribe sins really bad and God's really angry that he doesn't want to mention them, kind of like your son just, he leaves a tribe out. And when he leaves a tribe out, he can still have 12 tribes. And then you see this in... um, you see this in Chronicles and you see this in Revelation. God is so angry at the tribe of Dan for bringing idolatry in the land, he doesn't mention them. But he still has 12 tribes in um, Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14 because he doesn't mention Dan, but Levi is there. But if he wants to mention everybody, let's say everybody's going to get mentioned, then you'll notice that all these 12 tribes are listed by name 21 times in the Bible. And a couple of the times that they're mentioned by name, he actually mentions them all and he puts Manasseh and Ephraim together and calls them Joseph. And so he still has 12 tribes. So no matter what, God still gets his 12 tribes, period. 